you know, if they cry out to God for forgiveness, then God will surely forgive them. Uh, and even the victim's family, if they were Christians, uh, God would give grace for forgiveness there. And not that it would take the pain away, but he would give grace for forgiveness. However, the person still deserves to be put to death. That's a right. suffering issue. Forgiveness does not remove consequence. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Vast Podcast. So good to have you all with us today. Hope you're doing excellent. It's still raining here in California, which my uh, esteemed co-host is now experiencing for himself because he's in Palm Springs. I'm in Los Angeles, and someone please pray for this weather to change. This is not why I live in California. Thank God I'm called here. Okay, so today's episode is brought to you by Dwell Bible, our incredible sponsor who have an amazing app that you can download in the App Store where you can listen and read. Uh, but primarily listen to scripture, lots of different voices, lots of different translations, and they have an, an amazing experience for you. And if you're a Christian leader, if you're a minister or pastor of some sort, this is also a great tool for your church to uh, help improve your people's relationship with Christ, help them to keep growing in the Lord, uh, listening to scripture, God being present to us through the scriptures, that being a sanctifying experience is not something that we can minimize at all. And listening is such a helpful tool uh, for your people's growth. So Dwell is offering you a free one-year individual subscription. You can try it out for yourself. Text the word GOOD to 39383. Again, that's GOOD to 39383. And you'll be able to claim your free one-year subscription to Dwell Bible. Happy listening, everybody. David Campbell, welcome. How are you? Well, the sun is coming out here in Palm Springs. Well, praise God. I'm so glad to hear that. So miracles can happen. We got here and it was more like a nice, misty, wet summer's day in England. Yeah, that's about how it is right now. I think we have uh, a little bit of sunshine at this hour, but the rain's coming back soon. And then it's raining tomorrow. And then I checked the weather and we're looking at a few solid days of um, sunshine. Praise God. Cannot wait. Well, I think where we uh, last left off, if I remember correctly, our previous episode was on uh, the death penalty and capital punishment um, and the uh, illogical argument of you can't be anti-abortion and pro-death penalty. Um, I view that argument as illogical. I disagree with that. Um, and so people can go back and listen to that conversation to get some further thoughts there. There was a, a comment that came in uh, to that episode that I thought maybe we could respond to or try our best to answer uh, today uh, because really briefly in that episode there was reference to John chapter 8 as a uh, possible precedent for uh, whether or not Christianity is incompatible with capital punishment. Jesus making that famous statement to the religious leaders, he who is without sin, cast the first stone at the woman who's been caught in the adulterous act. And of course, one by one, they drop their stones and walk away. Uh, and the woman is not condemned. She is allowed to live. So um, that was uh, 
something that we came across just i think it was like a quick little google search i did um in the middle of the episode and made mention of that chapter and we talked about how that chapter is not a part of the original uh writings of the original manuscript of the gospel of john and so therefore just just the first 11 or so verses right so therefore not uh, yeah not the entirety of john chapter 8 uh, just that story itself um and so let's talk about that because the question that came in and i think the question was a bit tongue in cheek um uh, a bit critical if you will but let's answer it just the same the question was something along the lines of what do we do with john chapter 8 then with that particular story is it just a nice bible story or is it something that we should build doctrine off of how do we interact with that story it's like anything else uh in biblical study you have to understand it in context so jesus is the 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 wider context is the old testament law and the way that the you know religious uh leadership uh has uh hypocritically um pledged allegiance while not obeying the law themselves which is a constant theme in Jesus' ministry, a consistent theme in Jesus' ministry. So here in this story, um, Jesus is uh, unveiling, he's drawing the blinds on the hypocrisy of these men who are carrying on sinful practices in their own life while condemning this woman for her sin. And so... Uh, Jesus is addressing the hypocrisy by saying, uh, well, you know, you, you are taking the place of God. If, and if you claim to take the place of God, which is what you're doing and sitting in judgment, then is your life being lived to the very same standards that God lives his own life? Uh, because if it isn't, then your attitude stinks and you disqualified yourself. That's basically what he's saying. And I think the other part of it in it is um, it's a prophetic statement about the fact that the Old Testament law uh, is coming to a fulfillment in Christ. And the, the, you know, the true meaning of the heart of the law is going to be revealed um, through the ministry, death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. And so things the way that the Pharisees are looking at the law uh, is not going to be the same way that Christians look at the law through the sacrifice of Christ. So attitudes toward how we interpret the law are changing, and um, Jesus is condemning hypocrisy. So that's those are the themes of the story. Um, it's got nothing to do with the validity of the death penalty or not. The validity... A, a better place to go in uh, the context of the New Testament is where Paul says, I will subject myself to the death penalty if I have done something uh, deserving of it. He says in uh, to, at the end of Acts in his trial before Agrippa and Bernice and Festus. And so Paul is saying, I, I'm not asking, asking to be exempt if I've done something. So, uh, you know, that would be my response. I think you've got to look at things in context. Uh, what, what is the context? And I think 
if you're trying to extract a point like that out of that story, then that's not really what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about religious hypocrisy and legalism and people who profess to be righteous through their own efforts but aren't, uh, and God being the only judge. Yeah, it would seem to me that you would have to you'd have to have some preconceived notions of uh you know of what you think about the the morality or immorality of capital punishment uh, in order to see that in Jesus's words right you're reading it into the passage yeah um and i i think too it you'd have to uh you'd have to be a, an advocate of um well, you'd have to be antagonistic, rather, to the idea that God could ever be divinely violent, that he, he would ever impose um, such a severe penalty on on people himself that would amount to their death. Um, well, and, and, you know, you have to, to look at the book of Revelation and realize that, you know, God is allowing the plagues come as a form of judgment upon sinful humanity, and beyond that, to the final judgment, uh, where God does bring judgment on people for their sins. So, uh, and, and not because he's vindictive or nasty, but because of his holiness. Uh, and, um, you know, and I, I suppose partly also because God is allowing people to take the consequences of choices that they've made and, and they're happy to make and they didn't, wouldn't want to take any other choice. So, uh, so it's, it, there's a whole wider picture, uh, involved in it. Um, and the other question that has to be asked, Jake, I think from an ethical point of view is, um, so supposing I come along and shoot you and, and you're dead and, I I am, and so then someone comes along and says, "Well, David really really shouldn't be put to death for shooting Jake because we don't believe in capital punishment." But what about Jake? He's dead, you know. Uh, what about the justice of that? And what about the fact that if I am not punished for shooting you, then it becomes an incentive, uh, or maybe incentive is too strong a word. Um, the disincentive to murder people um, is removed so that, or part of it is removed so that there's no fear of punishment. If, if every murderer or everyone that, you know, goes out with a gun or a knife or whatever with intention to wound or kill someone knew that they were going to die if they did it, the murder rate would be a lot lower. So what about the lives of those people which are lost because, um, you know, more severe forms of punishment are, are not being upheld anymore, and therefore innocent people are dying. That's another ethical question, too, that has to be. And I'm not, I'm not pretending to have all the answers. I'm just saying, you know, the, this situation of cattle punishment isn't just as simple as you think it is. No, it's not. And when you really press it to its extremes, reasonable people, it would seem, would come to the conclusion that certainly some crimes justify as severe a penalty as capital punishment. And we don't need to start naming them, but you can 
very descriptive very quickly um, that can make us all squirm on the inside and go, okay, surely the conversation is more nuanced than just it is immoral to inflict that penalty. Well, the Old Testament, it's basically premeditated murder because the Old Testament makes provision for manslaughter, uh, uh, you know, for the lesser penalty in that case. But for premeditated murder, that's where capital punishment is appropriate. And and I think a good case can be made for that. One of the verses that I thought of as you were speaking about that was how the blood of Jesus cries out uh, a better word than the blood of Abel. Um, the blood of Abel perhaps crying out for vengeance and the blood of Jesus crying out for a redemption is how that's often put forward. So if we were to play devil's advocate, what, could we say uh, that actually what Jesus has accomplished through the cross and through the shedding of his blood is that does that warrant a change of thinking in um, in how we approach things like judgment and vindication, vengeance? Well, it 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 does. It it releases forgiveness. It enables us to release forgiveness. However, the question of uh, um, criminal justice and punishment for, for instance, premeditated murder is a different matter. So that even if someone who is a murderer, you know, uh, um, God, uh, uh, you know, if they cry out to God for forgiveness, then God will surely forgive them. Uh, and even the victim's family, if they were Christians, uh, God would give grace for forgiveness there. And not that it would take the pain away, but he would give grace for forgiveness. However, the person still deserves to be put to death. That's a right. separate issue. Forgiveness does not remove consequence. It doesn't. And But the bigger consequence is that they will live eternally in the presence of the Lord. Uh, I mean, I don't know what the thief on the cross did, but um, exactly. Uh, they were robbers or whoever they were, but um, he... Jesus said today, you'll be with me in paradise, but he still died. He didn't deliver him from the death. No. Yeah. And even in our salvation, we are not delivered from death. It's just that we have a hope of resurrection beyond it. Mm -hmm. um, we still bear the penalty of our sin in, in, in the aspect of we, we still have the experience of death, you know, no. um, and we die with Christ and then we have the hope of resurrection, but uh, our our sin still has consequences, um, and and that is an absolute fact. The other scripture that I thought of too was in Luke. Um, let's see, Luke thirteen, I think it is, uh, where Jesus talks about. Um, he makes comparisons to some other people in Israel who had suffered a terrible fate. Yeah, do you think that those these Galileans were worse sinners than all? The other Galileans, because they suffered this way, that these are Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Uh, it, see, this seems to me fairly clear from Jesus's perspective that... Um, judgment and sin go hand in hand with one another crime and penalty go hand in hand with one another and all of our sin brings about 
and deserves judgment. Um, and the only way to be saved from judgment is to repent and to turn to God. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be completely spared of consequences of our behavior, though. No, and, and and what kind of God would he be if he did spare us from the consequences of our behavior? He'd be compromising his own integrity, and he wouldn't be a holy God whom we would want to worship anymore. Um, so that, you know, doesn't even make sense. We we want we want a God who upholds his standards. Yeah, yeah. And I guess kind of coming back to the main point and bringing up that chapter. So it's not part, and pretty much every Bible will will say this now. So like for example here in my NIV, it says the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7 verse 53 through John 8 verse 11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part uh, after, and then it lists a few different places where these this story appears. So what do you do? Because another passage that comes to mind that is a similar um, uh, caveat is the end of Mark, where entire Pentecostal doctrines have been built upon handling snakes and drinking poison and so on and so forth. Both of these were not in the earliest manuscripts of our New Testament. How do we approach parts of the Bible like that? Like, Well, first of all... um, there are very, very few, um, uh, you know, mo- what we call textual variants. Um, so uh, I'll start at the beginning. Um, we have thousands of of manuscripts or partial manuscripts or fragments of the text of the New Testament. And this is in total distinction to any other ancient document, for instance, the works of Plato or Aristotle or the great Latin classics. Generally, we have maybe one or two manuscripts that date from the 8th or 9th or 10th century are the oldest that we've got. With the New Testament, we have thousands, I can't remember, six, 7,000 or something, uh, manuscripts or, par- or fragments um, from the first, you know, several centuries. Uh, and so, I mean... The attestation of the text of the New Testament is of a magnitude of several thousand times greater than any other ancient work of antiquity, which we don't generally question, you know, whether it's Virgil or Homer or whether it's, uh, you know, the the Herodotus, the Greek historian, or um, Livy, the Roman historian, or Tacitus, or whoever. So... uh, so the, the New Testament manuscripts are highly, highly, highly attested. Um, and so that gives rise to the, the, the fact that with all these thousands of manuscripts, all of which were made by hand and copied, uh, it stands to reason that you're going to get some variations. But actually, the variations, remarkably, are very few. And most of them are tiny. Uh, or very, very small, uh, uh, you know, spellings of a word, for instance, or the exact way you might put a sentence together. Um, and so the the two situations that you've mentioned, the ending of Mark and the woman caught in adultery, are probably the two biggest 
uh, examples of textual variants that are more than just, you know, I could say misplaced comma, but Greek doesn't have commas, but you get the idea. Um, and uh, there is no single point of doctrine that hangs on any textual variant, including these two. So what we do is we look at we being, you know, that was the trained biblical scholars. We look at uh, the manuscripts that we've got and we assign uh, weight to them, relative weight to them, depending on uh, how early they are and how well they cohere with or are supported by, you know, other the rest of the New Testament manuscripts. And so what you've got in uh, what you've got in um, those two texts, uh, I'm not a textual scholar, but uh, I think probably it's going to be what's called the Western text, which is Vatic Codex Vaticanus, which is the or Vaticanus, which is the uh, New Testament manuscript contained in the Vatican Library. And then you've got two other uh, um, complete manuscripts, which are Sinaiticus, which I've seen, uh, and Alexandrinus, both of which are in the British Library in London. And though those and, uh, and related manuscripts are considered to be earlier and uh, the scholars put a greater weight on the readings that are in those, uh, whereas some that are later uh, and maybe have less weight, less corroboration. And so that's, that's where these two bits come into play. And then these two passages. And then in terms of the ending of Mark, there are some aspects in it in terms of what is the style, what are the words contained in it. Uh, it seems to be different from the rest of Mark's gospel, as if it was written by somebody else. Uh, and and uh, it, it looks like it, it was that the gospel ends on a kind of an abrupt note uh, with the women at the tomb. And it looks like somebody has tacked on an ending to it the last uh, 12 or so verses. Someone has tacked an ending on to it to make the document end in a more appropriate manner, whereas really it should just have been left as it was. Uh, and that's the bit where you get the picking up of snakes and drinking of deadly poisons, which seems to be out of alignment with the tone of, the, of any of the Gospels in the New Testament literature. Um, so, in what sense do you do you mean? That? Uh, well, because it it seems a bit extravagant, you know. Jesus didn't ever talk, and neither do neither does anywhere else in the New Testament talk about you know handling deadly snakes or whatever. It seems to be more like a commentary that somebody, having read Luke Acts, right? You know, at the end of Acts, and they see Paul picks up the viper. It seems to be something that a little bit later date. Somebody has picked up from the life of Paul and, you know, kind of written up uh, an, an ending to the gospel and thrown that in because they liked, for whatever reason, they liked the idea or thought it should be mentioned. So what I'm saying is that with textual variance, um, which is not at all where this discussion began in capital punishment, but uh, 
in textual variants, um, there's two things. There's uh, the man actual manuscript evidence itself. And secondly, um, there is the question of, well, is there something in the text itself that is jarring, that it doesn't seem to be connected, doesn't seem to be in alignment, in alignment with? And that's the problem with the end of, of Mark, that there are bits in it in terms of the grammar and the style and so on and the content, which doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the gospel, added to which it has weak manuscript evidence. That's why nobody considers it. There's no serious biblical scholar considers it to be part of the original text of Mark. But, and, and, and in The Woman Caught in Adultery, uh, the issue is just textual because the story is sounds very authentic. Uh, it is exactly the kind of thing that could have happened to Jesus. And it's quite possible it did actually. It is actually a true story. It's just that somebody wrote it in uh, for whatever reason. Somebody wrote it in to the text of the gospel because they thought they thought it should be added. But if you look at the New Testament uh, as a whole, these are like piddling drops in an ocean uh, that are easily resolvable. It's not something at all that we have enormous reason to be confident in the text of the New Testament. Enormous reason to be confident. Yeah, And if you look at at a United Bible Society's Greek New Testament, though they give ratings, you know, to the textual variants, and they list them all in the in the footnotes at the bottom and give ratings to them, uh, and 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 say, you know, this is manuscript A, B, C, and D, and so on is in favor of this, and E, F, G, and H or whatever in favor of that, and you can sort of judge for yourself, but uh, for the most part. Uh, it's inconsequential, tiny details like a s spelling of a word or something is put in a future tense versus a present tense, for instance, that has absolutely no or virtually no bearing on the meaning of the text itself. And the two examples, as I said, that you've mentioned are about the only two, really. Uh, the other one that comes to mind is, Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Which... Uh, and again, that goes back to what's called the Textus Receptus, which was the uh, text, the, the Greek text upon which the authorized version of 1611 was based. Uh, and it was a it was kind of cobbled together, and 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 we know now that it it, it was faulty in some places, and and particularly in the. Uh, book of revelation where a latin manuscript was used because somebody didn't have access to a greek one so anyway that's probably way too much detail even for the dedicated listeners of this podcast so when you when you approach john chapter 8 personally what guardrails do you have up well i mean i approach it this is this is something that carries the heart oh I see. Uh, what guardrails do I have up in relation to the authenticity of the text, or in relation? Yeah, do you read it differently than you read, you know, the rest of John chapter eight, which, which is in the early well. Days. See, I, I, my position is that if you look at at 
the end of John chapter 7, verse 52, and then you go to 8, verse 12, it runs together. It looks like the bit in between has been uh, interpolated, has been stuck into the middle of a text, and inter it's an interruption in the text. So that's why I don't consider it to be authentic. And ideal things that I've less said is when you're reading it, uh, if if what you're drawing from the text can affirm what the New Testament teaches elsewhere, then have at it. If what you're drawing from the text runs against what you would draw from the rest of the New Testament, then have caution. Right, and I don't see anything in the story of the woman caught in adultery that is out of alignment with the rest of the New Testament, which is why, in spite of the fact that I think somebody originally decided this is a neat story, and I'm going to, while I'm yeah. copying John's gospel, I'm just going to stick it <laughs> in here. Uh, and I think a certain number of people like the story enough that they left it there because it is completely coherent with does that Jesus transgress ministry. does that transgress John, does that transgress John's own instruction at the end of revelation about uh, adding to the words of of his writing there do you, do you think he felt similarly about his gospel <laughs> there you go <laughs> uh, uh, we'll find out in heaven we will. Maybe. If that is the worst theological problem we have to face this year, then we should be grateful. Yes, yes, yes. So we appreciate you all listening. And hey, do us a favor uh, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. That does a great deal of help for us. Also, rate us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Super helpful. Um, and if you go to vastpodcast.io, you can also sign up for our newsletter which we've started doing on a weekly basis. You can get that into your inbox. God bless you guys. Thank you again to our sponsor, Dwell. We love you all. We'll see you next week.